Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. This Ask Me Anything conversation with Alfie Cohn was the culminating event of the July 16th, 2020 Constructing Modern Knowledge celebration. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Steger. I want to introduce a friend of mine and inspiration and mentor, one of the first people we ever had speak at Constructing Modern Knowledge when there were only about 25 people in attendance. Alfie Cohn was, was one of the guest speakers in 2008 at the first event. This week would have marked our 13th consecutive Summer Institute for Educators. And sadly, the, the COVID virus made it impossible for us to proceed. Um, but Alfie Cohn is one of, one of our nation's most prolific authors and leading education scholars. I always think of his work in terms of his fearless audacity to force educators to confront their compromises. After Alfie Cohn speaks or after you share some of his writing with with educators, some often respond in kind of a sputtering fashion where there's a lot of but, 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 but that follows. And then over time, we find that they don't actually disagree with what he's saying. In fact, I can barely think of anything that I disagree with in his work, um, but that he really challenges us to confront the compromises we make in what we do as parents, as educators, as citizens. Um, so, would you join me in welcoming Alfie Cohn? And he's here. So, I'm going to ask just a couple of questions, and then we'll leave the floor up to all of you. So, I hope you have some good questions to to, to share. Um, well, welcome, Alfie. What What are some things that that educators might be thinking about in this this moment of uncertainty? You mean uncertainty be about when we'll be freed from house arrest? That kind of uncertainty? Is that, what? that and, and all the related issues. Well, uh, we, can, we can be thinking about how we take temporary reasons to suspend bad practices and turn them into permanent reasons that were there all along. So, for example... Uh, a lot of schools, colleges, as well as K-12, have had a moratorium on grades or some sort of pass-fail system for good reason, for equity reasons, because uh, unfair to penalize some kids who don't have access to the internet and so on, um, and uh, standardized tests at the state level have been suspended in most places for last spring, and uh, continued movement to move past... Um, uh, admission exams to universities, the SAT and the ACT, all of these on hold. Somebody, somebody asked me about um, my view of uh, getting rid of grades for this semester because of COVID. And I said, uh, how would you feel if you learned that the CIA temporarily stopped waterboarding prisoners because of a drought? Um, you know, you're, you're glad... To, to hear that, but you'd like to think that it's not just for that reason and not just for now. So I guess I see this as an opportunity to be reflecting on why standardized tests uh, and grades 
never made sense and will continue to make sense once classrooms open up again so we can pivot past the pandemic toward making sure that this doesn't become just a, um, a brief interlude. That, of course, is taking advantage of what I think of as the good stuff that's happened accidentally for opportunistic reasons, the moratorium on bad practices. But, of course, I guess I have my views, as everyone in their little squares does, about um, the difficulty of online instruction. I think it's better to call it online instruction. It's an open question whether online learning happens um, and how, uh, how difficult it is to help put students at the center, have them construct meaning, and so on, uh, when you're just looking at a screen. Uh, you know, enough has been said about that. I don't have any special uh, insight into it. So are, are, are there any reasons for optimism? Is there any cause for optimism that folks are learning from any, any positive lessons from these opportunities? Yeah, Trump could lose. Oh, you mean optimism specifically about about this stuff? Um, I I I I don't know. Is it cause for optimism? I, I I'm very guarded in my assumptions that we're going to take advantage of these opportunities to do stuff better, since it's easier to do didactic, teacher-centered instruction when it's being done uh, on a screen. Uh, it's more likely that some people will take advantage of this and continue doing more online learning even when it's no longer necessary because people have figured out, now I know how to do it, so I'm not muted half the time. And plus, uh, it's cheaper for school districts, so let's keep doing the bad stuff instead of let's keep doing the good stuff. So as with anything else, optimism or pessimism is uh, sort of a luxury and a kind of a misconception because it assumes that we're guessing whether things will unroll of their own accord in a direction we like or don't like. Whether the good stuff or the bad stuff continues once this is all over depends on us, broadly speaking, and activism and organizing, which could lead us either to uh, continue with the bad status quo or the good status quo. So I don't know. You know, I've, I've heard some of the education, you know, leadership types um, marveling at how exciting it is that school principals and superintendents are reporting to them that given the, the chaos and the, and the crisis related to the pandemic and quarantine, that teaching, you know, that teaching and learning is, 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 is no longer their concern. And their concern has become, you know, delivering meals and providing Wi-Fi and, and, and babysitting. And, mm. and I, I think that that would be an unfortunate lesson from this experience as well, that maybe this should be the invitation to double down on our mission. Yes, which is although, although, you know, before we use a pejorative term like babysitting, one could look at that in another direction and say, this is an invitation to continue to realize what teachers have always been asked to do, which is teach the whole child, not just a disembodied intellect, that we are trying to help them become good people and not, not merely good learners. Um, and sometimes teachers have too many roles, expectations, and obligations piled on their shoulders. Um, but to the extent we're focused on the intellectual aspect of, of kids' development, then it would be nice never to hear the word 
delivery again in a faculty meeting unless you're sending out for pizza because delivery of instruction you know assumes that there are passive receptacles into which knowledge or skills are poured and i know you gary and presumably hmm. most most of us gathered here today know better than that so whether we can go past the online unit in it and beyond it to remind ourselves that we are not delivering facts we are inviting kids to have an adventure with ideas um that would be all to the good you know we've you know the 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 old bromide of it takes a village um to raise a child it it seems like at least in the american context that that school has been given all the obligation for anything having to do with kids and and maybe maybe they are doing too much I think there is a lot of parallels between the desire to defund the police, which, you know, even even conservatives will acknowledge the cops are being asked to do things that were never within their purview. And 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 that surely there, you know, someone said to me, but when my wife's wheelchair gets caught in the mud, the police lift her up. Now, well, that's fabulous. But surely there's some other helper in the community you might call who's not armed um and you know driving a tank that that could <laughs> and, and killing people needlessly that might be able to lift your your wife's wheelchair and and i think right. the same might be true for schools that they're, they're yeah no that that makes sense to me and you know when people say you got to open the schools because otherwise parents don't don't have any daycare we haven't taken a step back to ask what kind of society provides no structure of support for parental leave so we simply assume the schools have to perform that function yeah there's an interesting parallel with the police performing too many functions uh, maybe the lesson we draw from that is uh it does take a village but we don't have a village in a hyper individualistic culture we've given up on the idea of a common space and a common good and see ourselves as just a mass of of self-interested hopefully self-sufficient individuals you know you have to have an us first before you talk about what functions a village can serve and i know some of you are not i don't want to be too america centric here some of you are not in the us who are here today but the united states you know this is like somebody described the coronavirus in the united states as being um like a uh, a black light in a cum stained hotel room which is probably the best phrase i've heard yet about this about this pandemic and it would be it would be a really interesting description um let's just see how many people drop out now offended by that <laughs> by that the um i, I mean what an interesting assignment for a high school social studies class or for a college sociology political science class is explain tell us about what we've revealed here the obvious stuff is the systemic stuff the, this is what happens when you don't have a working public health system when you don't have national health care when you have this kind of grotesque inequality um and you find out how many people even in the middle class were you know a few hundred dollars away from the cliff but it also describes this kind of hypertrophied um individualism where people think if you tell them to wear a mask that's tyranny 
you know, and, and besides, my desire to get a haircut or go bowling takes precedence over the health of people who are immunocompromised. That's the absence of a village. That's what many of us knew we had all along. And um, that's what I think everyone is beginning to face. We are learning more about our culture through this, and it's not good news. But of course, this yeah, well, takes I, us beyond just education. And while I, while I appreciate the um, motivation, I'm concerned by the push to reopen by ensuring that schools have mental health professionals and 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 eradicate hung, famine and hunger and and all you know that I, I think this should be the opportunity to rebuild the us to rebuild the village rather than shoulder teachers with more responsibility for for all the needs of, of little people in our society. But here, take, take this example, for example, of how we don't even sometimes think about the idea of community and interdependence is the idea that, I mean, I have two kids who are 20 and 24 years old and uh, kids of that age, we regard a successful launch as parents as they're becoming self-sufficient um, as quickly as possible. It's a failure if they're still too tightly connected. That's called over-parenting or helicopter parenting. We want to make sure that they're out on their own, able to handle their own problems and so on. This is not a natural fact about human development. In many cultures, interdependence matters at least as much as independence. Um, and it's a uniquely American arrogance to think we've defined mental health, and it means launching more individuals into a place where they are not connected, where they don't feel part of an us, and that if kids are still talking to us and asking our opinions too much, or God forbid, living with us when after the COVID, of course, that that represents a failure of parenting. Well, a lot of people who have healthy a sense of autonomy um, are not particularly um, individualistic. And conversely, a lot of kids who are on their own are not particularly healthy with a sense of autonomy in the larger psychological sense. So that's just free associating a sort of developmental implication of how we may unwittingly perpetuate the hyper-individualism of our society and our thinking about raising children. So the pandemic combines with summer, which means we've got a supercharged edition of the media telling us about how much is leaking out of the children, of, <laughs> yeah. of how they're falling behind, of that the summer slide. And I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen people are, you know, there, there's a lot of experts say students have already lost seven months of whatever. Yeah. Um, was that ever true? Is it true? How should we think about that? Um, I wrote a blog piece that uh, where I'm happy to just point people to that where I had my say. It's called Lowering the Temperature on Claims of Summer Learning Loss. Um, you can find it on my website or just Google that phrase. And my, my point here is I looked at the research on this and I'll just say two things to be quick about this so we can start getting questions from other folks. One is it should be called summer standardized test decrements because every study ever done on it is not about learning loss. It's about lower scores on tests of dubious value. <laughs> um, and the second thing 
uh, that I would point out is the research that does find a decrement, particularly for um, low-income kids, yeah. that decrement, that loss over the summer is all about forgetting individual facts. So it's very possible that without having them crammed uh, down your gullet over the summer, you may forget how many miles it is from the Earth to the moon, you know, or some other, or the difference between a participle and a predicate. But what kids don't forget is how to design an experiment if they've been given the chance to do so. What kids don't forget is how to, how to write a poem that grabs a reader from the very first line. Uh, you, may, you may forget some details about iambic pentameter or the difference between a simile and a metaphor. So it's not summer learning loss, it's life loss of retention of facts that shouldn't have been overemphasized in the first place. When you talk about a more progressive constructivist approach to teaching and learning, kids don't forget that stuff. This is an indicator of how the teaching was problematic, not that we have to do more of it in June, July, and August as well. Yeah, one of the things that I've been reminded of <laughs> during this period is, um, you know, the precarious nature of summer itself. All of a sudden, summer ends the end of July in a lot of the country. Oh yeah. School, <laughs> right. School is heading back in, you know, August 1st. And, and so it's like, well, where did summer go all of a sudden? Well, that was, um, that was driven by test prep pressures mostly. Yes. got to start in August. So, so we can uh, prep them for the first, the first round of standardized testing. It had nothing to do with what was in the best interest of children, families, or learning. Like so many decisions made uh, in schools and districts. It's all about, I'm making the adults look better by having higher test scores. Well, it's 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 astonishing the how easy it was to win that battle. I mean, there, there wasn't a shot fired. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Should we I, open this up to other people? Yes, there? Ab absolutely. I mean, it's so, your it's your show, but uh, it's a um. Let's remind people to raise their hands, and we'll we'll unmute you and call on you. So, who has a question for for Alfie? I just clicked the wrong thing. Okay, Peter Rowich. Peter's an old friend, Alfie, and an extraordinary early childhood educator who just recently retired. So I'm going to unmute him and, and welcome Peter to ask a question. Um, Alfie, it's so wonderful to have you here. Uh, my favorite book of yours is Punished by Rewards. I have sent that book to more administrators at my school in hopes that they might actually read it and learn something. Um, Thanks. It's a delight to have you here. So my question is, um, you've inspired my thinking about children and learning uh, over the years, and I had taught for 42 years in public schools. I'm wondering who, who has inspired or who inspired your thinking about children and learning? Loads, loads of folks. Um, I don't even know where to start. The question, I mean, you know, I got, I got some of those books be, behind me of people I, I continued to discover, as well as yeah. teachers who, uh, yes, you do too, Gary. Thank you. Um, uh, 
I, I um, have visited individual classrooms of people and recorded the names for myself, but not always remember them. And I've been inspired by folks who I've seen do an amazing job. But I wouldn't even know where to start in terms of uh, theorists, researchers, um, authors. I guess I would need, I, I need you to circumscribe it. Ask me just early childhood or just high school or just science or just language well, uh, arts, you know. As, as, an early, as an early childhood educator, I would love to know one or two people that were an influence on you in early childhood learning. Uh, Lillian Katz, K-A-T-Z. Lillian Katz teaches us, among other things, the difference between intellectual uh, classrooms and mere academic classrooms for little children. Um, she also talks about the difference between horizontal relevance and vertical relevance. Vertical relevance is you're going to need to know this next year. Horizontal relevance is this may connect with something you discover this evening. Uh, it's part of your life right now, and that ought to uh, be part of our, our teaching. Um, I also think of, um, uh, let's see, some of the great constructivists who focused on early childhood development, um, uh, Connie Camille and her work on, on math, and, um, and then the late, wait, I'm going to think of this. Sorry, some of these names are leaving my head. Um, Clue, I'll help. <laughs> the, project, the project method. Oh, the woman who co-wrote books with Lillian. Yeah. Yeah, Sylvia Chard. Sylvia, yeah. Sylvia Chard. Um, but I'm also, I love the, uh, the book that's the name. Of, listen, I'm right over here and can find it. I may have to get back to you with this. It's, um, she was at the University of Northern Iowa and wrote a book on... Um, has both classrooms and children in the name. Do you know who I'm talking about, Peter? She was one of the early people along with Connie and Eleanor Duckworth who studied with Piaget, and she really helped to influence my thinking. I'll get this before the end to make that recommendation, but those are a couple of the people who helped me to think about. Uh, we, about we've this. had Lillian Katz at Constructing Modern Knowledge. I've tried to convince Sylvia Chard to join us, but she's, I think, living in France now and, and doesn't want to set foot in the United States. So, Understandable. <laughs> I'll come up with the name later. In the, Rita DeVries. Thank you, Sonia. Rita DeVries, R-H-E-T-A. Um, her, her book um, on the non-academic aspects of classroom learning uh, at the kindergarten level um, is uh, is must reading in, in terms of helping kids construct meaning around fairness um, and honesty and other social and moral aspects of um, of development. Um, and then uh, who else? The great the great kindergarten teacher and university instructor at the University of Chicago, kid who uh, you can't say Vivian Gusson Paley, another person sure. who had a big influence. All right, that's my list for now. I, I begged her to come to CMK as well, and she saw a picture of a computer and freaked out. And I couldn't convince her that <laughs> I couldn't convince her that we weren't scary, even though all of her friends had had come over the years. Um, but what if we had freaked out over a, a water table in a kindergarten classroom? 
right, who else has a question? Put your hand up. Oh, Brian Harvey, another great friend. I'm going to unmute Brian. Uh, somebody, I think, sent a message asking for a refresher course and how to put your hand up. I'm not yeah, sure how many need that help. Yeah, yeah. It was him. We've got him. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. So great. Hi, Brian. So I, I'm wondering um, whoops, how you came to choose education as the thing you wanted to spend your life working on. Well, it's not the only thing I spend my life working on even now. I also work with parents and think about human behavior more generally. But when I started out, my first few books were not specifically about education. They were about topics that grabbed me as being important to both individual and social development and that required you to draw from a whole range of fields in order to explore them properly. That was a message that I learned from uh, my first mentor in college, uh, a man named George Morgan uh, at Brown University, who was the only professor at Brown unaffiliated with any department. He taught exclusively interdisciplinary courses um, with names like Possibilities for Social Reconstruction. And I not only learned the substance of his ideas and the people he was influenced by, I learned the idea that true interdisciplinary education does not mean scotch taping together political uh -huh. science and neurobiology or whatever. It means you start with the questions that sprawl rudely across the boundaries that are erected between academic fields. And then, so my first book, for example, is about the destructive effects of competition in all areas of human life, at school, at play, at work, at home. And that requires you to draw from psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics, biology, leisure studies, and so on. Um, and I moved on to talk about altruism and empathy, and then to talk about the destructive effects of rewards. Gradually, I, became, I began to gravitate back to education. I say back because I had spent a few years in the classroom as a teacher myself, because I started to think about how do we make change? How do we move from competition to cooperation? How do we help kids become more altruistic and empathic? Well, the school offers a a sort of ready-made opportunity to put some of these ideas into practice. And that led me to start thinking more rigorously than I had in the past about education itself. And I began to learn from people who were way ahead of me on this. And little by little, I started doing more writing and speaking about education in particular in the hopes of making a difference about one aspect of larger problems that continue to occupy me uh, writ large. Great. Marsha, I'm going to unmute you. Marsha Stewart's up. Go for it. Um, okay. Thanks, Gary. Um, I have been struggling forever as a person about labels that they put on people. Um, I consider myself a stable genius. <laughs> I'm also an African-American uh, woman over the age of 60. And so I have lived with labels like inner city, um, kid, urban, um, culturally deprived, um, culturally disadvantaged. And I struggle with how this affects kids, ESL learner, all of these labels that they give to people who as they are working through the educational system that diminishes them. 
and how do we work out how to have more, um, who, what would you call it, more uplifting language for the things that people are working through, like, you know, like, um, uh, uh, oh, God. Um, you know what I mean. When you label people with things, then that's how they see themselves. And for most of my life, that is what it's affected me as. So even as a librarian, when I read a book, I see all white characters. And I've had kids reach out to me and say, well, you know this is about a black kid. And I'm going, whoa, wait, that's not what I read when I was reading that book because when I was going, there were no black characters or characters of anybody else. So I'd love to hear what your take is on how you make people feel included in this whole experience of being educated. Well, your second point about the lack of diverse role models is an important point, of course, but separate from the first point about the labels that we put on people. Um, we need labels. I mean, we need some way to designate differences. The question, the concern is whether those labels will be pejorative and whether they will pigeonhole people in a way that uh, we invoke what psych social psychologists have called a stereotype threat, where they feel they can't escape the implications of those labels when they feel limiting. It is certainly the case that we could, and in many cases now do, come up with other sometimes uh, painfully arrived at attempts to be neutral or even positive where everybody knows what they mean. And so simply swapping out one term for another. Uh, you know, I, I remember an old, you know, Matt Groening, who did the cartoons that became uh, ultimately yeah. The Simpsons, uh, in one of his, his classic books I recommend highly called School is Hell. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The, the teacher is assigning kids to reading groups, you know, and she says uh, the the gold group will meet over here, and the silver reading group will meet over there, and the brown group will meet in a small room in the basement. Now, <laughs> it's obvious from the choice of the labels what's going on here, but when schools move to less uh, pejorative labels and call them the robins and the bluebells and the sparrows, everybody still knows what's going on. The problem isn't from the label. The problem is from ability grouping. Uh, the problem is with segregating and stigmatizing and stratifying kids. And so while I agree with you that some labels are obnoxious and that the idea that some kids will never be able to do better than what we've assumed they can do, that's a bad thing. And we nailed a coffin shut with our choice of words. Changing the words doesn't do enough. We have to change the structural practices that are limited for people. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when a lot of terms that were simply progressive and forward-thinking and enlightened that have since been appropriated and co-opted by, by folks who are, who are quite um, uh, traditionalist in their approach, like a developmental approach used to mean something where we, we were attentive to kids' stages, where they, what they were capable of doing. And now developmental means the kids uh, have to inch their way up an adult-constructed ladder, um, and they only get to choose how fast at best. 
you know, and there's many other terms. I've written about this in some blog right. posts uh, that used to be uh, used to be good terms, and now now they don't really mean choice, much. choice, agency, classroom centers are yeah, now right. the stations for, for younger kids. Right, a choice center doesn't really mean substantial choice. The environment has been prepared in advance for them. They just get to figure out where to be when. And there are many other examples of this. Of this as well. So um, yes, let's move past stigmatizing labels, but then let's realize that coming up with a happy face new term isn't going to change much if the practices and beliefs haven't changed too. Maybe we can use the resumption of, of school as an opportunity to declassify all the kids. Uh-huh. Well, we'll and look see. at we'll them fr- look at them with fresh eyes. Right, 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 right. And that happens sometimes within schools where a teacher will pass on some details about the kids that the next teacher up is going to inherit. You know, don't even bother with this kid. That's nothing. She's nothing but trouble. You know, and that's that's it for that child. Fresh eyes. could be. Yeah, I I love one of one of your lines about um, how dare you prepare a curriculum for children you haven't even met yet. Oh, there I was talking about college instructors and the use of the syllabus especially a detailed syllabus that, that assumes that kids are inter- students are interchangeable, doesn't matter what they already know, what they want to know, and so on. I've prepared the whole course for them without any concern for what, what differentiates them. Well, but sadly, I think that's even come to the elementary school. You know, I, 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 I tweeted something that I thought was fairly uncontroversial and innocuous where I said, if there was ever a time to loop with children, it would be this fall. And I got a whole lot of, how dare you expect me to add and subtract, you know, to, to move from a second grade to third grade, you know, when clearly the benefits of not having to meet new kids and get to know them and, and you could, you know, reduce some, some levels of trauma and stress associated with new classroom and new kids and new parents and, and new right. rules and expectations. And, you know, I got, I got pretty serious pushback on that from, from educators, and even standard looping assumes uh, that we segregate kids by, by age, one year at a time, um, you know, as opposed to having multi-age classrooms, which uh, especially done with caring and skilled teachers have enormous social as well as intellectual advantages. Um, I mean, you could have them loop there too, but even our terms of the debate about whether to have looping already takes for granted typically that all the eight-year-olds have to be taught by one teacher. You know, I often ask teachers to think about how often as adults you spend only with other 42-year-olds or whatever, you know, talk about something that's unrealistic and not preparing kids to deal with folks of different ages, uh, that kind of diversity in the society. Yeah, Seymour Papert used the marvel at grouping children by similar levels of incompetence. Uh, someone just asked what looping means. Sorry, it means oh. that the, a teacher stays with a group of kids for more than one year. Can in some cases can follow them all the way up, so they have that same teacher all the time. They really develop a sense of community. Yeah, I thought it was literally the least we could do, given you know how much craziness we've lived through. But apparently, I was I was a big meanie poo poo head. Um, Dan and Molly had their hand up, and I hope they're unmuted one hand between them yes um, are they still there sylvia did you i don't see them i okay. they may, have well, they may come back well, kate 
Kate Burstein, you're up. Kate? Hey, hi. 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 Um, I'm here in Chicago. I just want to say, Alfie Cohen, I'm a huge fan of yours. I've read some of your books and articles over the years. And I'm wondering, um, so it's really exciting to be here tonight. I, I'm wondering, uh, aside from moving away from grades and some of the things we talked about that started this talk tonight, what are some suggestions? I actually work in a small private school where there's a little bit more flexibility and there's still a lot of um, pushback about not having grades and I teach math and there's a lot of pressure about that. But what are some, what, what do you think would be my, some good first steps as we move into this next year of a lot of, uh, you know, maybe hybrid teaching or, you know, some kind of mix and everything will be different this year. What are, what do you think would be a good starting place um, aside from grades to kind of push into more progressive teaching and what might be a good starting place to talk with administration and like move as we go forward so that we don't revert back to worse traditional methods or move into like a new world of online teaching when we don't, when we shouldn't have to. Are you asking about progressive alternatives to grades for assessing kids, or are you talking about things unrelated to assessment, but sort of parallel to assessment? I think I'm just wondering, like, what would you think, like, what would you see as, like, a first step towards moving away, just whatever, maybe even away from grades, but just some, some thoughts for how to become even more progressive, taking this, taking our challenge right now with the pandemic and having to go into these, uh, you know, with remote teaching and, and then thinking beyond this year when we get back into the classroom, like, what would be... What, what, what are some ideas for how we can move forward and into more progressive teaching? Like, would it be like more project-based learning or like, what, what do you see? Yes, yes to that. I mean, you're asking in effect, what constitutes good progressive teaching? And, you know, uh, I've written at length about that. So has Gary. So have some of the other people here. There's enormous number of, of uh, so very briefly to, uh, and I would encourage you to take a look at some of the things that I've that I've written in article form that are free. I'm not trying to push books on you where I have laid out some of what I take to be um, the most important things to keep in mind. One is starting with projects, problems, and questions mm -hmm. in designing curriculum rather than with facts, skills, or separate disciplines. Second is that most of those questions should come from the kids themselves so that their curiosity about themselves and the world allows you to construct with them, not for them, a curriculum that will not be the same next year because you'll have a different bunch of kids unless you loop. Um, and, uh, and also if you teach fourth grade, your fourth grade class should look quite different in curriculum from the fourth grade class next door. Um, because, again, you have different kids. Um, uh, I wrote uh, uh, an, an article about how questions dri might drive the curriculum. Uh, it's called Who's Asking? It was in Educational Leadership. Again, it's yours for the taking for free on my website. Um, and I think it's an excellent way to think about asking more and deeper, richer questions about the idea of questions themselves. First, shift away from questions that mostly have right answers to those that are open-ended and generative. Second, shift from you deciding what the questions will be that drive the curriculum to having the kids provide it. Third, have those questions be at the very center of the curriculum itself. Also, I don't know what else is going on 
currently in your classroom or school. Uh, so it's hard for me to say, here's an area where it looks like you've started but could go further. You know, I can't be a consultant because I know nothing about what you're doing. But ask yourself, how much of the stuff do kids have to do alone? Is the default arrangement in the classroom kids in pairs and small groups learning with and from one another? That's harder to do online, which is itself an argument for minimizing online when we have a choice. Um, third, I would rethink the idea of assessment, not only in moving away from any letter or number grades at all, which do enormous amounts of harm, but also moving away from tests, which we have research showing the best teachers almost never use a, because tests measure what matters least about understanding, and B, because a classroom that's set up intelligently renders tests unnecessary because teachers are getting a constant stream of information about who's getting what and who needs help and where there are gaps, so you never have to draw a line under it and then just give kids tests. If grades and tests are driving kids so that they have this extrinsic motivation to do well on them, all the other suggestions about constructivist and construction uh, and collaboration can only go so far because the goal isn't going to be proficiency at thinking deeply about questions that matter and coming to fall in love with understanding. Those things will be fatally compromised by bad outcome measures. Anyway, I could ramble on uh, until for the next three hours about other ideas, but where it makes sense for you to start will depend partly on what you already know, uh, what you're already doing, uh, what pushes your buttons and makes you a little uncomfortable, and what you can get away with. Thank well, you. So that's related to the conversation we were having before we began about your thinking about facts. Can you tease a little bit of that for the audience? I'm working on this. I've been working on this big piece for a while, called, tentatively called The Facts About Facts, which is a pushback against the reactionary folks who have the audacity to use cognitive science or the science of learning to describe a backward notion that is, I, I call the bunch of facts approach to learning, though they like to dress that up with pretentious terms like um, cultural literacy and so on, but is basically just about information that doesn't involve making connections and distinctions, doesn't involve much thinking, can be looked up on a phone, will soon be forgotten, typically doesn't make for a very engaging kind of classroom at all. And I'm trying to uh, pull together newer research about uh, goals as well as methods and realizing that there are important limits. Knowledge matters, but not nearly as much as, as, as other goals do. And we actually have research suggesting that not only are facts not enough for reaching those more important goals, that's actually impeded by an excessive emphasis on facts. So as uh, there and, and this actually is what the real cognitive scientists, not the neo-behaviorists, have told us. As Lauren Resnick at the University of Pittsburgh put it, thinking skills tend to be driven out of the curriculum by ever-growing demands for teaching larger and larger bodies of knowledge. 
That's a quote. And that's not just slapping back the politicians and corporate executives far removed from the classroom who come up with these, you know, uh, bits of what Jonathan Kozal called amputated knowledge that every kid has to know. It's a pushback against the the E.D. Hirsch's and Dan Willingham's and others who claim falsely that science is on the side of a mostly knowledge-based curriculum. And I look at, I'm taking apart some of the studies they love to trot out that don't show what they claim uh, that it shows about the importance of knowing stuff. So I, I would imagine even the, what's considered the teaching of thinking is probably problematic. Uh, yes. And the one, one place where I guess I, I do overlap with some of those folks is uh, they don't much like uh, teaching a series of skills or testing a bunch of generic skills. But I don't think this is, uh, you know, a seesaw where you either have a lot of skills and not too many facts or a lot of facts and not too many skills. I have a trouble with facts and skills when they are discrete, decontextualized. Right. Unconnected of experience. Yes, and not related to the kids' questions and the and the deeper kind of investigations they can they can undertake. It's very important not to just assume that if you're if you're skeptical about facts, that means you're on the skills side or vice versa. You know, both are consistent with bad traditionalist behavior as teaching. It's not about constructing meaning. So let me ask you one more question, and we we ask open it up to precaution, take one or two more. Um, so we, we both talk a lot about progressive education. How would you define it? How would you communicate that, that no, notion there, to, to, a lay, to a laity? It, it would be unpleasantly ironic if there were a single fixed definition of progressive <laughs> education. And unfortunately, there isn't. You'd get 10, 10 people in a room who consider themselves progressive educators. You'll get at least 10 definitions of progressive education. What's um, the spirit? The spirit is, first of all, it's not just about linguistic and mathematical intelligences, that there are other forms of knowing and understanding. Secondly, it's not just about kids as, as knowers, but kids as people, that we're interested in the whole child, to cite a phrase that's now considered quaint, I guess. Um, and it's about some of the other things that we've just been talking about. It's about under deep understanding rather than just cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory. It's about collaboration and community, not just about individuals and never about setting kids against each other in competition. And it's about letting kids make more decisions, not just individually, but as communities of learners about how their classroom will be decorated and what they're going to learn next and everything else. I like to say uh, um, that kids learn how to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. And I think that's at the core of what most folks mean when they talk about progressive education. But there are differences in emphasis. There are some, for example, who talk about product and outcome and, and even use the word work, which I hate using in the connection with children and learning. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Ted Sizer used it. The Montessorians use it. Uh, that's okay. You know, the, uh, uh, the folks at Reggio Emilia talk about products, having kids come up with something. That pushed me to rethink that, even though other progressivists talk much more about process. 
Some talk more about the individual child's growth and development. Others always talk about it in terms of community of children. But the other things that I rattled off before that I think form common denominators with the way many people talk about progressive education. Terrific. Okay. There are, I should add quickly, there are some schools that call themselves progressive when I think, eh, you know, just, and it took me a long time to realize this, just because they're politically, or especially, you know, small private schools, just because they're politically or culturally progressive and everybody hates Trump and is working against global climate change and has a Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn, that doesn't mean they're not doing damn worksheets to the kids. They're not necessarily educationally progressive just because they're culturally progressive um, and they call themselves progressive and then you realize Kids didn't have anything to say about this curriculum. Conversely, there are some schools that I think are doing a pretty good job at being progressive, but they're running away at top speed from the label, lest they antagonize any potential customers. You know, so you see it in both directions. I, I, I often think uh, and observe that there's nothing worse than bad progressive education, something that Matt Groening does a terrific job of lampooning uh, fairly regularly. Hmm. You know, children discover your desks. Um, right. Or kids in reading class who are, who are making paper mache models and never get around to books. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Prakash. Yeah. Hi, Alfie. Um, I'm an architect. Uh, and basically, after I read your book, I was working for New York City and we built over 100 schools. I was the director of operations there. After I read your book, I knew that I couldn't do that anymore because nothing that you said, it was the schools our children deserve. And I try to bring that and say, well, how does what we are doing, we're spending billion, literally we spent $10 billion in New York City over 10 years. And we hadn't done a single school that would come close to delivering the kind of education you were talking about. So I started my own company. And over the last 20 years, we've done work in like 52 countries. And I'm telling you that your work has been significantly influential in what we've done. So the question for you is this, that... Today, unfortunately, despite all the stuff, good stuff we are doing, I mean, there are 50 million students going to school. And we, have, we use the word classroom almost um, as a metaphor or, or no, as a, as a um, parallel word for school, right? And that word classroom keeps propping up. And so basically some qualities of a classroom are that children trapped in a box, 700 to 750 square feet, where individual children are given less space than than a criminal, in, I mean, than in a high security prison, right? I mean, you have one adult teaching them, presumably. There's very little that child children can actually physically do in that room. They're sorted by age. And I mean, I can go on and on and on. It is such an inhumane construct. And we have bought into it blindly. And people keep saying, we need to go back to this physical school. And what I'm saying is, why? I mean, why should schools look the way they do? Because you've kind of lost the battle already. If the physical place that you go to has already made a significant number of decisions that kind of decide that your children must be sorted by age, they must be taught by one adult, they must spend multiple hours sitting on a cheap plastic chair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're not attacking that problem, what are we attacking? If we can't get rid of the school as we know it today, I mean, kids should never go to a building uh, like the space, I don't know if you can see the one behind me. That's one of our schools. You enter a family room, and behind that is a curiosity center. I mean, this is, and this is a public school. So I'm saying, um, why is that lie not being called out more loudly that 
classrooms suck, <laughs> that they are inhumane places and that should not be a place that they shouldn't exist, honestly. How do children and teachers collaborate, you know? So, I mean, all so I'll, I'll think off the top of my head about this. Um, well, I th- it seems to me there's a difference between stuff almost any sentient adult would see as dehumanizing or at least inconvenient. Some of what you've described is too many kids packed into too small a space that isn't very appealing. Um, you know, it may be too hot or too cold. It, uh, they, the chairs may be uncomfortable. Anybody can see that. And I can't explain other than we don't value children as much as we think we do in this society, why that should have been that way and continue to be the case. But some of what you've said would not be recognized as problematic by the vast majority of sentient adults because they've never been invited to think about learning as something that students do actively rather than passively mm-hmm. or that they do collaboratively rather than alone or in one whole class grouping and so on. Nobody ever imagined that. You know, you look at every, every photo of models on a website for some product that's come out for education that shows good, happy students. And they're all there raising their hands and smiling. You know, every single advertisement, that's just the assumption. That's what a classroom should look like. Kids in rows who are mindlessly waiting their turn to be the first with the right answer to the teacher's factual question. That's what it looked like when I went to school. How the hell do we expect... uh, politicians, corporate executives, other stakeholders, decision makers, to realize that's not, you know, I think I started that book of, uh, that you uh, mentioned, The Schools Our Children Deserve, with a paragraph describing a high-performing school. Exactly. And I said, what's wrong with this picture? Exactly. Every sentence is wrong. <laughs> Everything, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so, so for that aspect of the physical environment and the design features of classrooms and schools, you have to have been invited to do some deep and subversive thinking about yeah. what's wrong with the whole s- status quo of what constitutes effective learning before you get around to saying, now, how do we create a building that reflects the best of that? Yeah. Right. I mean, Saracen's book, what, and what do you mean by learning is, is fantastic in that regard. I mean, people don't even have that discussion. You know, we, we don't even come to a, any kind of consensus about lear- what learning is. Um, Jan. Hey, I, I, I have a, a question. I, I, yeah. I, I can't raise my hand digitally, but because I'm a co-host. Um, so, you know, the other day, I know people noticed that the uh, American Pediatricians Association Academy. Came, Academy came out and said, kids must go back to school. And it struck me that here they popped up with this, you know, thing that they all decided. Uh, did they have a meeting? I mean, what happened? And yet they never say anything about the conditions in school. They never say anything about the harm that tests do. There's no psychological association that ever pushes back. How come some of those people aren't on our side? Am I being, should I be suspicious that they're on the side of warehousing kids in, you know, in institute, you know, in in schools that aren't good for learning? Uh, Or is that just too suspicious? Well, they, well they, saw this as being, they saw this as being under in their purview because it de- deals with medical, you know, uh, mostly epidemiological issues, which I'm not sure all pediatricians are 
competent to comment on. But the, but the just like most pediatricians are not competent to to tell you to uh, use time out instead of spanking because they're just channeling the the general wisdom about raising kids and discipline. They are not tra- you know you call call a pediatrician when you want to know if you should be worried about your kid's fever. You know if you're asking about how do you raise a a kid when there's problems with what's going on, you might as well call your refrigerator repair person as a pediatrician. Um, and they they thought, and they weigh in periodically also about when should kids look at screens, how much TV, you know, they weigh in about um, kids should have some playtime and say, you know, generally good stuff. Uh, I guess it takes them a long time to come to consensus. But here, they suddenly got a lot of attention for deciding maybe three feet separation is adequate even though that that didn't come from them. So I take your point that if they haven't been careful observers and critics of mainstream education, should we listen to them about their, you know, large macro suggestions about when and how it's safe to get kids back in school? But I guess they were thinking, this isn't the time to be thinking about what school looks like once the kids are back in it. Well, and their assumptions about children must be in school because that's where children must be are are problematic. I mean, these, these are also the folks that normalized drugging children to comply with school. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, again, like some sort of, you know, tin, you know, tinfoil hat kind of person. But, um, you know, they go on TV and say, you know, if your kid's not liking school, it's OK to slip them a little something. Mm hmm. Okay, Janet. What would you say to parents and administrators who are asking for teacher-centered instruction rather than taking advantage of this opportunity for students to pursue uh, passions and projects as well as small group or direct instruction? I'd say don't do that. (laughs) We need more than that. Uh, Well, I would invite them to, you know, think about their assumptions about what learning is. I would do some of the same stuff that I said at the beginning of the hour to debunk concerns about um, summer learning loss and the idea that uh, learning is about coming to understand things in uh, increasingly more complex fashion and never losing your curiosity and passion for doing so. Um, that that's ultimately what, what predicts to academic excellence, not cramming facts into their heads. Um, Once we've moved past that, then we say, you know, in fact, some of those worksheets, not only do you not need to be doing those at home during the pandemic, the teachers shouldn't have been doing them in the classrooms before now, and they shouldn't be doing them after this. So here's an example to come back to where we started, Gary, is using this as an opportunity for, for leverage, as as a chance to rethink the assumption so that we don't just go back to what we had before. But in the meantime, tell parents, the good news is you don't have to be imitating traditional teachers at home when you can be helping them to discover and explore while they're home. Uh, that should be a weight off your mind. The bad news is this is going to cause some inconvenient questions about the kind of schooling that's been done before and after. However, 
Uh, it's also an opportunity to challenge a very common uh, false dichotomy, which is either we have top-down, highly structured and controlling teacher-centered instruction where we deliver information to meet certain specific standards, or we let the kids do whatever the hell they want and it's playtime all the time, and we just stand around and watch while an acorn develops into an oak. I have spent my career trying to indicate that progressive education is not laissez-faire, that ironically, it's, it's easier to either sit back and do nothing and it's easier to just tell them what to do. The hard part is selective, constructive engagement as an adult to be a catalyst and a facilitator for the learning. To take the Reggio Emilia metaphor, the kids have a question, which is the ball they bounce over to us. We put a spin on that question and make it a little more complex, and bounce it back to them. They add another question, bounce it back to us, and so it goes. So parents, the idea that if I know a lot about science, that makes me qualified to be a science teacher is based on the notion that teaching is just pouring information into kids. That, in fact, really good teachers don't just know about their content area, though hopefully they do, but they also know something about how children learn, about pedagogy. And most parents don't know that. They may not know that they don't know that because you think, I went to school, so I'm an, an expert on, on education. That's the crux of my question, is how it's, it's about how to communicate that to parents, because at home, they are trying to recreate their own childhoods, and they are panicking. Right. And, and they think if the kid's having too good a time exploring something, that's a sign that they're not really learning. This is what I call the Listerine theory of education, based on the mouthwash whose ad campaign for many years was, it tastes terrible, that's how you know it's working. And that's, that's what drives our understanding about learning and our fear that joy, you know, means that learning isn't taking place because it you know, the, the parents, in effect, think it was bad enough for me. It's bad enough for my kids. And that's another debunking activity we have to engage in that that isn't that isn't the case. You may not, as a parent, be able to do an expert job at facilitating kids becoming more complex thinkers. But at least like the physicians, including the pediatricians, would say, begin by doing no harm. Worksheets are harm. And the, the parent who's a scientist might actually be better for imparting an interest and curiosity and love for science than the traditional school approach. When, yeah, when the scientist parent isn't trying to teach science, <laughs> when they watch the, the, the mom or dad who's a scientist take delight uh, every other day of the year. But, you know, it's like mathematicians typically make terrible math educators. Um, so knowing a lot about the field and even enjoying it isn't the same thing as knowing how you help children learn about it. And that gets, could take us to understanding the, what's wrong with the university model, where we assume that philosophers and historians know anything about teaching philosophy and history. Typically, they don't, don't even enjoy it, 
aren't evaluated based on their competence at it and see it as an occupational hazard. Okay, so I've got, I see a couple more hands up, and so I'm going to say who's going to get to ask the questions, and it's uh, sadly all blokes, so if a woman puts her hand up, we'll sneak you in, but let's start with James Classen, and then Seth, and then Brian. And then we may have to wrap up, maybe? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. James, quickly. Hey, and, um, Gary, this is James from Abbotsford, BC, out on the West Coast. Anyway, I, I have a question regarding the... Um, the concept of removing um, traditional assessments. Often not in middle school, but often kids come to us in grade six and seven, and their, um, their big question is, will this count? So, and their parents want to know how they rank in comparison to uh, other people, and first of all, wants to know how the outcomes were met. And I believe that the students should be developing their own questions and, and um, assessing themselves through a, a level of um, self-reflection. Um, how do you um, communicate to um, leadership and to parents the value of a student's own um, understanding of what they're learning, the metacognitive part of assessment? Uh, well, first of all, metacognitive stuff can itself be overdone to get kids so focused on on how well they're doing that they're no longer engaged with what they're doing. Right. Um, um, you have to, you can't act on the kids and say, change your attitudes about this or give them a lecture about it counts because it's important, you know, and then just get all huffy and defensive about it. <laughs> the kids are being rational in responding to an irrational and dysfunctional system that is giving them, you know, letters and, and number grades. That has to change as a necessary but not sufficient condition of creating an environment where kids can get lost in, in the learning itself. Now, rating kids with numbers and letters is bad enough. You mentioned something that's even worse than rating, which is ranking, where the parents are concerned, not just about how well my kid's doing, but how's my kid doing compared to others? And that is a question we should never attempt to answer. A parent who wants to make sure my kid isn't in trouble, perfectly legitimate. Is my kid the best in the class is an illegitimate and obnoxious question, and we need to make sure we never answer it or create a system that even makes the answer to that obvious. I remember once a teacher saying to me, a very mild-mannered, soft-spoken young woman, I remember in line for lunch, told me this story at a workshop. She said, the parents asked me, how's my kid doing? compared to everyone else. And I would say, your kid is the best one in the class. Of course, it's the dumbest class I've ever had. You know, which I just think is this lovely way of saying that relative information is completely useless in addition to being setting up a destructive environment. Um, that gets to my point of what's worse than a reward is an award, award, which is a reward that's made artificially scarce. But one more quick point here that we have to attend to, and this connects to your point about metacognitive stuff is, getting rid of grades isn't enough, and even getting rid of standard assessment where the teacher unilaterally decides how well the kid is doing in favor of self-assessment isn't enough either because self-assessment can also be destructive. A whole subfield of educational psychology finds, and I'm now gonna summarize an entire chapter I wrote in the schools our children deserve, and a lot of research that I, by other people that I was 
uh, distilling in one in one sentence the more you get kids focused on how well they're doing the less engaged they tend to be with what they're doing so getting rid of ranking and competition right. is step 1 right. Getting rid of rating and grades of all kinds is step right. two, but then we have to move past rubrics, we have to move past points, we have to move past self-assessment that happens on a continuous basis. Most of the time, kids should not be thinking about how good they are at this particular intellectual task. They should be completely involved in the doing of it. Yay. Okay, so there's a related softball that I'll throw to you as I unmute Seth, um, and that was AP tests or AP classes. Uh, AP tests and classes, advanced placement, for those of you not in the U.S., um, are almost always the most difficult classes in a high school, and we mindlessly assume, therefore, they're the best thereby confusing harder with better. AP classes are typically a way of accelerating the worst forms of teacher-centered, test-driven, fact-based instruction. Some teachers manage to swim against the tide, particularly in less in more open-ended stuff in fields like English language arts, but otherwise, Really good teachers teach badly if they're teaching to the college board's curriculum, which is mostly based on rigor. And I have been in some rigorous classrooms I wouldn't send my dog to because there's a difference between rigor and high quality. So first, we have to realize that just because it's harder doesn't mean it's better. Second, we need to realize that if the college board is, in effect, creating the curriculum for us, uh, with the test that we're preparing them for, then the teacher doesn't have much discretion. And if the teacher doesn't have much discretion, she can't pass that on to the kids. And AP classes almost never allow the students to play a central role in designing the curriculum. And that all by itself is a powerful indictment of them. Terrific. Seth Yeager. Hi, uh, Mr. Cohen. I'm uh, calling here from uh, Bogota, Colombia right now. And I just wanted to say uh, you're uh, probably the uh, most influential public thinker for me as both a professional and as a parent. And uh, just really appreciate it all. So um, touching back on a point you were making just a couple minutes ago, um, even when sometimes we attempt to uh, co-create the curriculum with students, we uh, set up um, you know, engaging uh, environments in which they're able to ask their own questions and stuff like that. I feel like there's a constant battle against, um, you know, the maybe not institutions, but more like the corporations that are kind of like weaponizing our data and our distraction and attention. Um, and kids are constantly um, battling this. I'm just wondering to see how you um, how you view the the dichotomy between both uh, you know progressive co-created uh, environment curriculum environment um, versus just uh, you know the, the the deluge of uh, the distraction economy. I guess. Well, we were fighting an uphill battle for progressive education and what you call co-created curriculum long before there were smartphones. So I'm not sure how much they've contributed, probably something as a distraction. We certainly shouldn't let those beasts, you know, pass the gates into the schoolroom. 
where they take this behaviorist nonsense and then turn it into apps to be used in the classroom to teach or to assess or to control kids' behavior and monitor them, you know, like with garbage like Class Dojo and so on. So these, these people are not your friends. Therefore, we should be very skeptical about, you know, what they're doing uh, in the classroom itself. But I don't know how much of it is just the distraction. You know, uh, before there were computers. It's not like kids were going home and uh, opening up fine novels all the time. Let's not creating create a sort of, uh, you know, as, as somebody once said, I think it was Adrian Rich, the poet, said, uh, nostalgia is amnesia. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there may, there may be elements uh, of the distraction that we have to, we have to try to battle that makes our job even more challenging. And I guess my, my generic answer to that would be bring the kids in on that process. Don't, don't, don't save them by yourself from those distractions. Use that as a teachable moment to invite the kids to reflect on this and what we can do about it so it becomes an opportunity for more learning where we are consulting them for coming up with solutions and for framing the way the problem is framed. Well, I'm, you'll be I'm thrilled to hear pretty rapidly. We're going to take one more, one more question, but uh, you'll be thrilled to hear that Class Dojo is advertising a new feature. Then the ad that came out this week literally says worksheets is coming. Oh, oh good. So it's ungrammatical as well as manipulative. That's great. Okay, so Brian had a chance. Okay, Brian, ask a very quick question, then we'll we'll say say thank you and we'll wrap up. Brian, you're up. Um, thank you. So I have a, a very brief anecdote and then a question. The anecdote is uh, I was volunteering in a fifth grade class, and I gave the teacher your book on homework, and she was convinced and said, okay, no homework, except you should read something every night. And that lasted a week because every parent called up to complain. So that, that's the... To, to complain about the reading requirement or no, to complain about, about the, the lack absence of homework? Aha. Uh -huh. How come my kid isn't getting any homework? Uh, and she, she uh, failed by not answering that question preemptively. That's right. She, she caved. Uh, but the pressure was you know, severe. Um, right. But I've heard from, I mean, I interviewed loads of teachers for when I was writing that book who told me that they got applause when they got, when they got rid of homework, but particularly when they explained to the parents that the research finds no advantage of any kind to any kind of homework before high school. Assigning any homework in middle school, let alone elementary school, is educational malpractice. Yep. Um, to say nothing of how, by doing so, she's saying to the parents, in effect, family time is for families to decide what to do. How dare I reach yeah. the long arm of the school into the home? Right. That would be presumptuous. So if you explain this, you know, then yeah. you may be able to have parents rethink that and actually thank her instead of complaining. So the question that I wanted to ask actually is about competition. Um, I've always hated competition, even before I read you. Um, but um, I teach, uh, well, I taught, I'm retired, computer science at Berkeley, and our undergraduates run a 
sort of low-cost alternative to FIRST Robotics for the local schools. Um, and I got sucked into this project, um, uh, really fearful because I hate competition and it's a competition. Um, but in the event, uh, it turned out that to my astonishment, the kids were really cooperating with each other across teams, you know. Uh, I can't find a such and such tool here. Here's mine. Um, and so I'm wondering what you think about that kind of competition. Um, it sounds like for whatever reason, and I don't know how much of this was because the stakes weren't very high. Yeah. Maybe these exactly. people didn't think they would win. Uh, maybe they were just kids who actively pushed back against competitive pressures. I don't know what, what was going on. Something worked to minimize the inherent harm of all competition. And that's good, but it would be much better not to have to swim upstream and to do away with the systemic pressure that in other environments and with other kids would lead to not only a lot less sharing across teams, but in some cases, people actually trying to um, yeah. screw each other's uh, well, I, projects up and um, you know the, so in the short term I'm just I really need to go so I'm going to wrap yeah, yeah, this up quickly sure. here <laughs> short short term stuff is we do what we can to minimize the harm of the status quo the long term is we organize to change the status quo to make a systemic change which in this case means working with all the other computer science teachers to get rid of the damn competition and have a robotics festival where we don't ruin a perfectly good activity by forcing some kids to become winners and some to become losers. And that, that gets us back to the very first question about labels. We call it a science fair, but it's not a fair, it's a contest. We call it a chorus festival, but it's not a festival. We have to turn even singing into a damn contest where not everybody can just share what they enjoy change the systemic nature of it so that teachers who come in the future don't have to try to minimize the damage of an unnecessary competition. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much, on. Alfie. We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, holisticmusicworks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, live.constructingmodernknowledge.com. Be sure to visit cmkpress.com. That's cmkpress.com for books by creative educators for creative educators. Listen to all of our education conversations at your convenience. Visit live.constructingmodernknowledge.com or search for Constructing Modern Knowledge in iTunes.